this hobby of ours doesn't have to be just, oh, look, I have a tunic and it has four pockets and we can talk about wool variations and button variations, which I'm all about. I love that too. But really my perspective and my approach to it has always been, let's do this like for real. Let's do this like real historians. Let's approach it from a historical way. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Reenactors Corner. Chris is on vacation this week, so it is just me, along with our special guest, uh, Mr. Zach Williams. Zach, do you want to introduce yourself? Hello, Ben. Glad to be here. Glad to finally, uh, I got on the podcast. I know if you guys, if some of you are more um, eagle-eared listeners might remember I had a twin brother and he's been on, and uh, that was a year, year and a half ago maybe. So I'm, I'm glad to have finally caught up with him and I'm on the podcast. This is a first for the show, actually. I don't think we've ever actually had siblings on the show, let alone twins. So this is, this is we're making history. This is fantastic. We just got to get so, my dad yeah. on and we'll have the entire Williams family uh, perspective covered. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, let us, let, us, let us try to line your dad up. <laughs> All right. So without further ado, um, Mr. Williams, um, Mr. Uh, Mr. Zach Williams, not to be confused with your brother. Or my dad. Us, uh, or your dad. Let us uh, just start by, you know, introduce yourself, talk about your perspective, I mean, and maybe how that might differ from that of your brother. Just, yeah, feel free to say something about yourself. So, um, I've been reenacting, God, I think this is my, my eighth year in the hobby, which I know for some people it's like, oh, he's still got his training wheels on, but... It's interesting. Your perspective changes over time. And when I started off, when I was, I think I was 18 and a half or 19, right about there, I entered the hobby with one perspective. I came in wanting to do this, 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 and this. And it's interesting over time how it it just changes what you want to do. So in that between, you know, eight years ago and now, I went to college, went to university, um, and I discovered that you know, people can be very dismissive of reenacting, right? That it's not an academic thing. It's cowboys and Indians. It's uh, busting caps, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But going to university, getting my degree in, in history and, and education, secondary education, I really realized that this is historical. This is something that, you know, people, again, they derided for X, Y, and Z reason, but this is something that has value, that has historical use, and I've always been a little bit of an academic, you know, my, my gym class scores would, would always prove that out. Um, but it, it really interested me once I started learning about historical processes, historiography and whatnot, that this, this hobby of ours doesn't have to be just, oh, look, I have a tunic and it has four pockets and we can talk about wool variations and button variations, which I'm all about. I love that too. But it really my perspective and my approach to it has always, especially since I've, I went to school and got a little more educated, um, has always been, 
let's do this like for real. Let's do this like real historians. Let's approach it from a historical way using primary sources. And that's why I'm I'm a little bummed Chris is on vacation. I got such great respect for him with all this primary source work he does. It's it's incredible what you guys put on the um, now it's Festung, the Festung.net website. It's just absolutely incredible. And I hope to try to bring some of that to the hobby, a little bit more um, academic rigor. Um, and well, we've been pretty successful, I think. Thank you for that. Thank you for that praise, Zach. So, I mean, if you don't, if you pardon my my saying this, you are a school teacher by trade. Um, so, how do you feel that has kind of uh, your approach to living history? You know, like what do you do? What do you like to talk about? You know, like how do you you know seek to educate the public at a public display? Um, yeah, and I would say I really I do recommend at least everybody for one year in your life become a teacher. You know, it's everybody's got to work in a, a dead end retail job, and then everybody needs to become a teacher, and then everybody has to be a construction worker or something. These are like mind changing things about how you approach um, just your own life and how you do things. And like I said earlier, I think just having a little bit more academic rigor in what we do, just approaching things to be, you know. History is a science, you know, when you think about it. You approach it a certain way, there's a methodology. And I think just combining that with my education degree hopefully has allowed us to really give, when we do public events, um, really just hopefully people go away with knowing a little bit more, um, understanding the people who did this. Because that's one thing I, I really try to emphasize, whether whatever impression we're doing, whether I'm doing Soviet for World War II, that's my main, my main shtick. Um, or if we do any number of the countries I've attempted for World War One, is that you know these armies of of millions of men and women, um, they're people. They're they're people just like you and I. Um, and I think this more humanistic approach usually has good results in, in in living history when we do public events, which I will say is probably our bread and butter. Um, being in the Midwest, uh, if you couldn't tell from my uh, atrocious accent, I am from the Midwest, um, and we do a lot of public events with a lot of um, what we would, some people would call living history. Some people might not call living history if they have a, a more negative opinion of it. Um, and it gives us a lot of a, a practice to go out and see what spiel works. Do people want to hear about, you know, Soviet life, Soviet culture, Soviet society? Yeah, some people do. Do people just want to hear about the Mosin-Nagants and SVTs and why the Germans ripped off this from the SVT. Yeah, some people want to hear that too. And I think being flexible in our approach is really what gives us a lot of success at public events. Um, we can have more high-minded academics come by and talk to them. And then, of course, you have the, you know, the stereotype of people just want to talk about uh, guns and grenades and boot soles. I'm, I'm guilty of that as well. I, you guys know I'm obsessed with boot soles. Um, yeah, you have a very impressive uh, collection of photographs actually on your on your social media of Soviet boot soles. Yeah, that's like the I one thing I keep resource. public is that you can you can see you can't see any of my personal life, but you can see I love Soviet yeah. boot soles. So yeah. people, Fair I'm enough, sure on the internet have formed an opinion just on that. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair uh, enough. Um, well, but yeah, no, I know. I think it's it's been invaluable, and just having that experience and practice with with facing the public, you know, and reading your audience too. I think a lot of people like to ramble. Um, we talked about this a little bit during the setup. You know, some people can just go and go and they talk themselves in circles. Um, you know, once you realize you're doing that, it's always good to pull back and say, well, I've talked a lot, folks. What do you, do you have any questions? And almost always they do. And it's just, 
just more interactive. It gives the the people at a public event more, you know, hopefully they could learn what they want to learn about. Um, you know, we don't go in with a set script. We have our talking points, but it's always flexible. You always got to be flexible. Well, man, I think that's really, really good, insightful perspective, and I really sort of commend that approach. You know, I feel like I've said before that, you know, any academic with a bone to pick could, like, really tear apart the sort of merits of uh, historical, you know, uh, what a lot of reenactors think is important when they try to talk to the public, which is, of course, you know, talking about guns and, like, buttons and stuff, you know. So I think that's uh, that's... That's a good, fresh take, you know, and uh, I think, you know, it, it just, it, it is appreciated, basically. I always, when I was, when I used to think about that, and I still obsess over material culture, as any good reenactor should. Yeah, but, of course. You but know? <laughs> you got to realize that certain things are for us, and certain things are, if you're doing public displays, not everybody does. Some people have, want nothing to do with the public, and that's whatever. Uh, one thing I've learned over doing this for eight years is you can't yuck somebody's yum. Yes, I have in my mind what I think reenacting is. Um, but if somebody else just wants to do something else, well, that's the great thing about the hobby is it's it's what you make of it. Um, so some, like I said, some people might say, oh, I don't want to talk to anybody. But if you do, it's important to have a little bit of experience and things. Um, and hopefully, you know, like you said earlier with academic coming in and just ripping it apart you know me being an academic i do that sometimes but i realize that there's a lot to learn these people have valid criticisms concerns whatever you want to call it and why not take these 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 criticisms or whatever and use them you know change things up and i think um i had a professor in university i won't embarrass her by saying her name on on a public podcast Um, but she was a great influence not only my academic career but just she was fascinated by reenacting. She thought it was, she had a very negative opinion before she met me. And then when she realized that, you know, I was applying these concepts and historical ideas to the work, if you want to call it that, um, you know, it was, I think it was quite flattering to see that, oh, wow. Okay. He's actually paying attention and using these things in his, his hobby life. So uh, I have a lot of respect for that professor. That's that's awesome. And well, first of all, I mean, I love the positivity. And I mean, second of all, I mean, reenacting is kind of fascinating from a sociological perspective. But I think we could probably make a whole other episode uh, in end of itself about that. Yeah, I want to be back for no. that one for sure. <laughs> <laughs> right. Fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. But um, no, nah, man, that's that's just great. I love that. I love that perspective. I just think that's really good. Um, all right. So. Unless you have anything else to add on that, I wanted to ask you about sort of your career as a reenactor so far. I remember from talking to your brother way back, which this surprised me, but Dylan said he got started with British. Did your sort of tenure as a reenactor mirror that of your brother? Like, who got into it first? Like, what? Uh, what's the what's the story there? So that's funny you mentioned that. I was actually just talking to him, maybe on Monday or Tuesday. And I said, you know, Dill, we've been doing this for, for eight years now. And he's like, oh, it doesn't feel like that at all. It feels like I'm still, uh, you know, I'm still in, in the summer of 2016, still going out to our first public event or whatever. Um, oh, my but, God. Yeah. But, no, I never really had an interest in British. Um, I love a lot of the guys who do it. And it's a cool look. I love that potato sack look you get from the, the BDUs. Um, yeah. Very impressive. Yeah. And the short jackets. Very period looking. Yep. 
Um, yeah. But I never, I mean, he lent me some stuff. We've One problem we both have with reenacting is we tend to overbuy. And I know, um, Ben, <laughs> I'm not going to call you out on your own podcast, but I, let's just say I know you know what I mean. Guilty as <laughs> <laughs> Um So he always would kit me out, and I, they would do like little tacticals and things. And I'd go and hang out, but no, I, the British never interest me. Um, I was always a Soviet man, a new Soviet man, if you will. Um, Very good. I was maybe 14 or 15. We went to a, a big local event in Illinois here called, it's Rockford, Illinois. They do a huge public event for World War II every year, and I think they've been doing it for 20-plus years now. I was maybe, yeah, 13 or 14, and I, I wandered down to the Soviet row. They put them in the back away from the public, I guess. They didn't want them, uh, you know, yep. these evil Russians to see. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they didn't want them publicly seen. But, you know, just talking Ooh. to the people, they're very, you know, very nice. But what did it for me is they put a, a helmet on my head, and they put a, a Brezhnev over my shoulders, the coat. <laughs> and I was like, yep. oh, okay. As a 14-year-old, I knew what I was going to do the rest of my life, so... Um, thank you to those guys for, for getting me down this, uh, um, quite expensive and time consuming path. Oh, it is expensive and time consuming. All right. <laughs> but yes. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's fantastic, dude. So once you went down the Soviet path, I mean, I know you've, uh, you've dabbled in world war one. Do you want to comment briefly on that at all? Yeah. So I, in the last couple of years, maybe three years or so, I've been really, really into world war one. Um, to the point where I've I've gotten rid of some of my World War II stuff in order to go further in World War One. I. I I don't know what it was. I think maybe just because it was something new. You know, I'd been doing Soviet at that point for five years. Every summer, you know, we'd go to six to eight events, you know, between mostly public events but tacticals. It was just Soviet, 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 which is good because that's my focus. That's my love. It allows me to really dive deep um, for research, for primary accounts, for whatever I needed to do. But I wanted something different. So I started doing World War One. of course, lured in by another reenactor. Um, as, as, it, as it happens, As, as it does, yep. yep. <laughs> and I, I don't know. It's just a whole different community from World War II. Um, and I'm sure other reenactors who do, you know, 17th century, who do French and Indian War, whatever, um, would say the same thing. Oh, it's so different from Civil War. It's so different from World War II. But it was it was really refreshing. And I, I think it was kind of like a mid-career like refresh for me. It was just like, oh, okay, there's a whole other field I could I could look into. So for World War I, I do uh, Tsarist Russian. So I got to have the 20th century Russian-Soviet experience. But I've been really into Austro-Hungarian, um, KUK. Um, really a lot of fun. That's my own ethnic background. I am at least partially. I mean, I'm we're all American. I'm a, what they call that, an American a melting pot. I've been melting potted. Um, <laughs> but at least one prominent part of my ethnicity is Hungarian. So it's always been interested in, you know, in my family, the Hungarian side, they came here right before World War One. They missed all of that horror, which was fantastic for oh, me. Oh, interesting. So it was, yeah, I don't know. You're still it, here, here with us, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so it was always interesting to do Austro-Hungarian just because it was like, oh, well, what about, you know, if we had cousins or something who didn't make the boat? Um, you know, what would they have gone through? Um, so it's, yeah, I, I really have gotten into World War One. Of course, Newville is a big part of that. Um, ben, you've been oh, to Newville, the site right? Is- I have, I have, but never for a World War One event. You know, I've only been for World War Two things. Oh, so, okay. I, I would, yeah, it is. 
spectacular. Yeah. I mean, y- y- you know, I feel like the site almost needs no introduction. No, but, no. I think, yeah. yeah, it's been talked about enough on here. I mean, it's a 12, for me, where I live in the Midwest, the United States, it's a 12 and a half hour drive. And Ooh, boy. I make that willingly every year in November. I, I'm like, I have to go. This is my, literally my favorite event. You know, I think it's the Midwesterner too. We love sitting in cars for long periods of time. Yeah, the the, the Midwestern man, I would say, is has a is is you know has a you know proclivity to be behind the wheel for a very long period of time. Which uh, us New Englanders, you know, everything is between two, one and four hours away. You know, and just like anything longer than that is like complaint time. You know. Oh, and but I, yes, I sound I, macho and machismo <laughs> from that, but. I mean, we're very lucky in the Midwest. Most all the events we can go to are within two or three hours. So that is good, man. So I guess this good. is the one time I'm like, all right, we're getting in the car, we're moving. Um, and I highly recommend it for all the listeners if you if you haven't been to World War One, and you do World War One, of course, um, you got to go. You got to go. It's a whole yeah. different reenacting experience. I will say, just not even from having been to a World War One event, but just having seen the sights and just heard the rave reviews, yes, you know, he's absolutely right. So let's cycle back and let's talk about your main passion, which you alluded to earlier, which is Soviet um, and your sort of career as a Soviet reenactor. Um, I mean, is there a... Your, your group is Stoshnik. So, like I said, I've always been interested in, in Russian, Soviet stuff. And I don't know why. I can't point to a specific, like, you know, my mom let me loose in the library and I accidentally took home a Soviet history book or something. Like, I have no idea. I've always just been interested in Soviet Russian history ever since I was a kid. And I again, I wish I knew because I'm sure there could be some kind of uh, miracle cure I could have given myself, you know, 20 years ago. <laughs> um and, but I really it w- awoken it in me. So I had started reenacting. And the first group I met, they were Soviets. And I was like, they put the coat on me, as I said, and it's like, I was doing it. But once I went to university, I discovered that where I went to school, they had an amazing Russian slash Soviet like course in their, in their history department. Um, taught by this professor I alluded to earlier. Again, I won't embarrass her by saying her name publicly on this podcast. But she was a huge inspiration just for showing me that okay, you were a weird kid who liked obscure history, but, like, that's good. Here's how you can use that. Here's better sources for you. Here's how to examine Soviet history. Um, so once I got out of college in 2018, I graduated in 18, um, I think that's really where I decided that we were going to change up our approach to Soviet reenacting. Now, of course, Soviet reenacting has been around for 30 years. Um, we actually have a member in our group now, great guy, He's kind of like an like with my dad. He's an elder reenactor, and he was reenacting Soviet in 1990. Um, Holy cow! Incredible. Right, that's what I thought too. And he had pictures. Um, they were using, you know, the the dreaded 1955 uniform. They all had pockets on their tunics. But for 1990, I mean, it blew my mind. Where did they even get this stuff? Sure. You know, the yeah, the, the yeah. Iron the Soviet still Union up. still existed. Yeah, yeah. So that is incredible. Yeah, he uh, he's a great reenactor, and he still, you know, it's been thirty years, and he still comes out with us. And I really have a lot of respect for this guy. Again, I'm not going to call him out, you know, directly on the podcast, but he's a great example of I what I think reenactors should be, because a lot of reenactors, I believe, they get stuck in their ways. It's natural. You find mm-hmm. a niche, it mm-hmm. works. Um, or it works good enough, and you just kind of hit, you're on autopilot. You know, you do this again, you do it every year, whether it be the same old spiel at a public event or going to the same three events in your region. 
people will get in a rut, and it's perfectly natural. I have a lot of respect for him because, as somebody who's a little bit older, you might expect him to act a certain way. You might expect him, oh, you darn upstart kids. I'm not buying a new uniform from those Ukrainian producers or something. (laughs) Um, But he's not like that at all. It was really, he's a great guy. He is an embodiment of what I hope all reenactors are. He's flexible. He had a great kit for 1990. He had a great kit for 2005. But when he discovered our group in 2018, 2019, he realized that the, the, the goalpost had kept going. You had new sources, new suppliers. We learned what uniforms were good, what uniforms were bad, what uniforms were never worn in World War II. And he was able to say, okay, uh, my stuff is farb. My stuff is bad. It's wrong. How am I going to fix my kit? Fix his kit up. And now he's, you know, at the age, I think he's probably in his mid-50s. He's out there, you know, he was at Kursk. He came to Kursk and, you know, um, was out there with the young guys running around and, and taking charge. And and he was perfectly willing to change it up. And I think, I tell that story not because I'm trying to embarrass him or, you know, give him false praise or something. I think that attitude is what we need more in reenacting. Somebody who is willing to roll with the times. Somebody who can say you know what, this is a positive change. Because not all changes in reenacting are positive. We can go over that as well. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. the rise of people who take a photo and, you know, put up their Zell to take a photo and then uh, put it back <laughs> in the car, which I'm sure is oh no, <laughs> always, always a scourge. Um, but just being able to identify these positive changes and, you know, being in a group or with people who are willing to maybe go against the grain, change things up a little bit. Um, that's what we need a little bit more in reenacting, just to be flexible and realize that, and this goes back to my academic background, history, people have this conception that history is fixed. You know, in, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, and what's, what's there to it? Well, yeah, certain facts can be facts, but we're always unearthing new information. We're always getting new sources. Things are getting translated. Things are being found. Look at, um, in the news about Pompeii. They found a whole new buried chamber of, um, untouched relics or untouched parts of a destroyed tavern or whatever it was. I don't quite recall, but you know, that was that going to completely change our understanding of Roman empire? No, probably not, but it's a great example of there's always new information out there. And I I don't want to say history is changing because that sounds sensational and, you know, um, Patently, I guess, on the face of it, just to be historiography, though, it's historiography exactly. So, when we started doing reenacting with our local group uh, in Illinois and the Midwest, uh, we were the 50th Rifle Division. If everybody wants to look us up, um, we discovered that there were other people across this country who were had the same ideas that you got to be adaptable, flexible, be willing to not stick to what you believe is orthodoxy. Um, and that's really how Military History Club Estosina come, comes around. Um, and you've interviewed um, Andrew Wirth. Um, he's fantastic. Yes, we have. Um, he was really instrumental with getting it set up in the East, um, Ohio, Pennsylvania, that area. Um, and he's still a dynamic force there. And I, I think that's what I love about Estosina is that, while on paper we're not like a, you know, we're not a traditional unit, right? We're not. Um, the first infantry division, we pay our dues every year and we all portray whatever. Um, we're just kind of a, a loose association. We come together when we want to for a big event like Kursk or like the other Logan Sport events we've put on. Um, and then people in their own areas, they do their own thing. We have, a, we're very, again, as I said, in Illinois, Wisconsin area, we're very fortunate to have 
almost constant public events. I mean, you could go to a public event in Wisconsin and Illinois um, almost every weekend in the summer from May till August um, or September. Still? Even. That's great. Yeah. That's awesome. I have dude. one on Sunday. That's right. Or in wow. two days from now, when we're recording this, <laughs> that, I'm going to another. That's one. cool, but um, that's fantastic. So yeah, it's it's really interesting that people, the hobby has changed. Like I said, I've only been in for eight years. I'm not going to pretend to know. I knew what it was like in the mid 2000s or 1990s or something like that. Um, but I do know the period we're in now. I got a good idea of what's happening in the hobby and the trends. And overall, I feel at least with Soviet, because we're originally this was about Soviet. Um, it's it's going in a positive direction. You know, of course, there's always going to wow. be holdouts who are going to cling to their tractor-sold boots and 1955 <laughs> uniforms and talking about faceless hordes to, in the public, you know. Um, but I think there's a, a group of guys who are, to borrow a Civil War reenacting team, who are progressives, who are, um, what do they call them in Civil War reenacting? Campaigner. Campaigner, Campaigner yeah, to borrow their term, yeah. which is a whole nebulous thing we could have another podcast about. Sure, um, sure, sure. Yeah, it, the, the ball is moving in the right direction, I believe, overall. Well, that's bolstering to hear, man. So, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is, as you've alluded to, the Kursk events. Yes, um, yes. Tell me all about it. So, um, um, I love these events we do. Um, we have a great group of guys in our leadership um, who are just utterly devoted to planning this thing. Um, and we start about eight months out. So, actually, you know, we've had the event. The event was in early June. Uh, first weekend of or second weekend of June 2023 um, we gave ourselves like a month and a half off and we're already starting up planning for the next one um, you know just people are just so dedicated to this event and we have a good core of guys not only on the Soviet side but on the German side as well um, we coordinated this with the 709th um, I don't know if that's regiment or division uh, German unit um, just fantastic group of people. Everybody is just willing to do the work. Um, so we're already planning for next year. But before we talk about next year, um, yeah, let's hear about this. Yeah, year. <laughs> let's hear about this year. Let's not get ahead of ourselves now. Um, Kursk, I think, or the events we put on as Istoshnik and the 709th, um, really are the positive change. I like. I, I think we need to see in the hobby. And I was just listening to the episode with uh, Mr. Mike Landry, um, and he was one of our commanders. He, his whole concept of being, uh, you can take a top level, an HQ or whatever the equivalent German organization is, and you just plant it on top of a, uh, an event. He was perfect. I mean, everything worked out really, really well with them. And it shows that, you know, people are willing to come from all over this country for these events. So why is that? So why do you think people want to come here? And I think it's because we have an experience for everybody. We have... Obviously, we have our roster. We fill it out. Um, the majority of it is combat roles. You have a platoon with three squads, something like that. I'm not an expert on organization. Um, never really interested me, but we put it together. And people can come, and they're in a squad. And you have the camaraderie of being with your squad mates, with your squad leader, in combat. And I think this year, the scenario we picked, Kursk, was really controversial. Because people said, when you think of Kursk, what's the first thing that comes to mind, Ben? Uh, I mean, I would say tank on tank combat. Exactly, right? exactly. And when we picked the scenario last year, um, I said the same thing. I'm like, okay, this sounds fantastic. Who's got tanks? Who Who's going to bring a tank to this event? And, you know, we, we didn't get any actual tank tanks at the event, unfortunately. But 
through the power of historical research, we discovered that because Kursk happened all over a huge front, you're talking hundreds of kilometers of front lines, not every section of front line was one in the steppe. Uh, we think of Kursk as just happening trench lines in an open steppe. Yeah. So yeah. the site we have in Logansport, for those who haven't been in Logansport, Indiana, um, it's a mix. It's, it's a rural area, so we have a mixture of thick forests, and then we also, the, the property owner purchased cornfields around him. And he's, we didn't use them this year because we didn't have as many vehicles, but we're planning on having, like, you know, we have the step now. We have a forest, which, you know, typically is where most reenactments happen, and then we now we have the step. Um, so it's not That's all cool, step. dude. And it's, you know, there weren't always vehicles on lines. You're talking, you know, a front line of hundreds of kilometers. The Germans are known for concentrating their forces in one small area. Um, so not every part of the front line was fighting was a tank-on-tank combat. So with that in mind, I think we were able to really craft a great scenario for the, the combat end of it. Um, and what's nice about that is that people like, so I know there were some people with our event last year, Rajev, who were quite upset that one side lost. I won't say who, I'm not going to try to cause more drama about it. They were upset that their faction lost, quote-unquote, lost the event when that wasn't historical. Oh, but in reality, this side won. Well, yeah, that's maybe true, but we're not trying to replicate an actual campaign. The, the scenario is just for basically tell you how to get dressed, how to act, what uh, weapons and things and armor you can use. But then once we put all this into the cauldron, it's going to play out how it's going to play out. If one side rolls the other side and just stomps them, so be it. They had better organization, they had better firepower, blah, blah, blah. If the historical side wins, all I can think of is that's fine. Yep. All I can think of is Axis and Allies, the board game. You know. Yeah, that's a great example, to, Ben. That's a great example. Up to the player to you know, it's like how good you play. You know. Right. <laughs> and that's to, so yeah. on the comment. So the, for the people who are combat junkies and who want to go to Logansport, you get that, and you have an authentic squad structure. At least uh, Soviet and Germans. I know the Germans this year did a lot of work to bring that up to uh, a higher standard. And they did a fantastic job because they brought in Mike Landry, because they had more dedication, um, whatever the case may be. Um, yeah, for, so for combat, you got that. You have your rip-roaring combat. You know, you're digging trenches. This year, we laid like three kilometers of, of barbed wire. Um, that Yeah, that was quite <laughs> a surprise to the Germans. I don't know if anybody brought oh, wire no. cutters because when we were cleaning up the wire on Sunday, or Saturday, rather, um, there wasn't a lot of it cut. We were doing the actual cutting to remove it. Um, so, you know, it was kind of like Newville in, in Indiana, kind of. It just reminded me of all the barbed wire we were laying. Um, that's cool, man. And that's something that we kept a secret. You know, we said, you, the scenario is the Germans are attacking, and the Soviets, whatever, they're going to have defenses. So the amount of work that every each Indian actor does, it was incredible. I mean, you had people who showed up on Thursday to spend the whole day digging. They dug, you know, I, I, we didn't measure it. I can't say it was so many meters of trenches, but there's a lot of holes on that property now that weren't there <laughs> the week before. Um, very impressive. That's very cool. And I just got to give it out to these people who just showed up and would be so dedicated. In fact, some people wore themselves out. They were digging so much and laying so much wire and doing all this that when time combat starts on Friday, they're like, oh, man, I'm exhausted. And I'm dehydrated. I'm exhausted. And all I've done was dig. Which sure, sure. is fantastic. I'd rather have that than, I guess, you know, no trenches dug. 
like but that's the yeah, comment and that's very, not for everybody though i mean that's why i like it's realistic yeah it is yeah. it is and that's people come in and some people there were some complaints we always do a feedback at the end because if we can't learn from our experience it's kind of wasted right so we do an anonymous sure. feedback form every year and that's what some people said it was just like i was exhausted and not as a complaint saying like this i've never felt this feeling at any event, obviously not at a public event, but like at a tactical, I've never felt this dog bone tired, whatever you want to, whatever you want to call it. So it was really, it was really heartening to see that. Now, of course, I can't claim credit for that. My actual part of it wasn't involving in combat. I left that to the professionals. Um, but again, I just got to give props to everybody. I mean, it was wonderful. You know, the combat seemed to went really well. People enjoyed it. Of course, there's always going to be people who complain about, oh, we didn't win. And we had that again this year. Um, but overall, everybody seems to enjoy that part of it. I was fortunate enough to attend uh, the event at that site two years back in 2021, mm -hmm. uh, where they were doing uh, Smolensk, and I I remember just you know digging and you know sleep deprivation, and I, I wouldn't call it fun, but it it was it felt that aspect of it felt very 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 realistic, you know, where uh, just like. I just remember I I was trying to like take a moment to have some soup and then the Germans started advancing. I could hear the sound of the half track getting closer and all of a sudden I found the strength to just start making my hole deeper. <laughs> yeah. So I, no, I tell I, you I, you gotta get out again, Ben. Cool. It's it's you know, that event, the first one we did, it was in my opinion, it looked the best. You know, the, the uniforms for forty one mm. are the best. I do like 41. I do like the 41. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, we're, we align these events to try to be the 80th anniversary of something. Because yep. 41 was yep. Barbarossa, 42 was Rajev, the curse this year. Uh, next year's event, which I'll, maybe I'll give the listeners a sneak peek of the top three scenarios when we're done. Um, I do want to hear that. Um, it's always supposed to be the 80th anniversary. But I was mighty tempted to throw my hat in the rink and say, let's do 41 again. It was so cool. But... <laughs> Uh, I would love to see that again. I was but, not. Uh, uh, I, I was not in the major majority, <laughs> unfortunately. Fair enough. Fair enough. So that's the combat, but, uh, though. I mean, if, so for people who just want to come and shoot, Logansport has that, and in a little bit more authentic way, having squad leaders in control. Um, cool. But what I care about, and I think Ben, what me and you and Chris would if he was here, I think we we really like about these events is that from the start when we started doing um, 1941 anniversary. We wanted a rear line. And when I say by that, you know what I mean. I mean, we wanted to have people who were logistics roles, people who were clerks, yeah. people who are cooks. We wanted that from the beginning. And I think we've kind of hit the ape. Well, every year we always get better, and not to toot my own horn, but I think this year, this event, Logansport, it was the first year where both sides were equal in the, the fun, whatever you want to call it, that you could have. The combat junkies got their combat, and the people who live for the rear line, we really fleshed it out. We really developed it. And I think, you know, all the way from cooks to clerks, we had a full functioning signals group um, of five or six people. They were running radios. They were running telephones. They were running messages when these things inevitably broke down. Yep, um, yep, yep. So this year I really – and medical. We had a medical group who were, you know – Half real, like, okay, you have heat exhaustion. Sit down, take off your tunic, drink some Pedialyte. And then we also had medics in the field, you know, doing um, like wound cards or something. So 
really, that's what I like to tout about Logan Sport is like, yeah, okay, there's a hundred tacticals you could find where you can go and shoot. But really, I think that this event, now, of course, I'm not going to compare it to the vaunted uh, FIG event, right? I've never been. I think by the time I started reenacting for real, it had been canceled. Um, but I feel like Logan Sport, a lot of the same people who were involved at FIG have migrated to, at least for their rear line things, have migrated to Logan Sport. I think we took a lot of their experience, all of their knowledge, and have made the rear line at Logan Sport something that people are willing to drive uh, or travel 10 hours, 12 hours for. Um, and I really hope that continues. Sure. Good, man. That's, I mean, that's very bolstering to hear, you know, like I, I do recall, I mean, in 2021 at Smolensk where it was, it was cool because, you know, there were people who were running messages like your brother and your dad were doing, were on the cook squad. So there was food for everybody. I remember there was a time where, you know, we were, you know, exhausted from continuous combat with the Germans and uh, coffee was brought up from the field <laughs> kitchen in uh, in like a in, in a container, which was just a real, you know, cool morale boost, you know. So, yeah, I, I think that the rear, the rear line stuff is very, very cool and how it kind of interacts with the front line. It's it's really wonderful. And I, I, one thing I my role in this event, so I can reveal what I did so people don't think I'm just uh, an empty empty body or something is that I ran the registration along with another mm. member of our group. And I, I was really trying to take a page out of your guys's book, which you guys do on the East coast for your, your rear line stuff. Oh, thank you. I was, thank I you. was consciously aping you guys. I, I'll, I'll admit there was <laughs> control C control V um, because you do such a fantastic job. I really thank we you, integrated paperwork. We had unit stamps and when you were registered, that's what you got. You got a, um, to bring up Newville for the 26th time for this podcast. Newville has like a trench pass. It deserves it. (laughs) It does. It has a trench pass where you, that's basically like your card to be there. You've passed safety, authenticity, what have you. So we did that um, as for, for, so we can avoid things like wristbands and whatever. And I think that worked really well. But for Soviet side, at least I was handing out paperwork to everybody. We had printed up a facsimile of the Red Army booklet and people could fill it out. It was an optional thing. I didn't mandate it this year. But people could fill it out. They get the big stamps in there. makes it look real official. And they have not only, you know, something they can use at the event. Hey, comrade, let me see your papers. You don't look like a, somebody I recognize. Um, but you could also have a souvenir. So it was really, really nice. And I know the Germans did something similar. Um, they had a, what's the name for it? Spice? 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 book? Yeah, the sold, well, they, yeah, they had this, yep. this administrative official checking soldiers. oh yeah speech speech that's yeah, the word spies. i couldn't remember the, yeah. the word yeah. checking the uh, the germans would have to bring their old sold books because they're infinitely more complex than the red army booklet um yes yes they are but they would be stamped <laughs> that you'd been transferred to the unit they were portraying for the event if you were a hair you got transferred into this new hair unit if you were ss you were transferred into the ss unit and the guy would stamp it and it was very impressive i i wish i had gotten a picture of his display and sent it to you guys because it was wow it was pitman tier i mean it was he had a tree of stamps <laughs> he had a typewriter it was it was really really good i wasn't that uh set up unfortunately but um next year next, next year, year. <laughs> i need to get me a russian language typewriter and then i'll be set <laughs> um but yeah so logan's port i mean that's what i love about it you know what you want to bum around in the rear and make soup Okay, come on out. We can use you. Stir the soup. You want to bust caps? We can use you too. Um, so I, I'm really encouraged this year how much, how well it went, how little. Oh, and I should say too, we had very few injuries. 
Um, good. That was good. kind of a big that problem with Smolensk and then Rajab is that yeah, there's always yeah, somebody getting. Can I say? Can I swear on the podcast or no? Yes, there was you can always swear. somebody getting fucked up. Like <laughs> the first year, somebody like had an asthma attack, almost died. The second year, somebody ah, broke Jesus. their ankle. Like so, this year, yeah. you know, two, two, two. Knock on wood, we had no, no major incidences. I'm sure there were some people who had cuts and bruises, but nothing we had to call the nothing. EMTs for. Good, thank, yeah, thank. You know, that's that's fantastic. And I think dude. that is that is. It's a good indicator of just you know people are more careful, people are more serious. But maybe on our end too, it could be that we're pushing the safety. You know, we're, we're reminding people. Good. That you're not Rambo. You can't run around for six hours and not eat anything, not drink anything. Um, no, no. Got to eat. Got to take care of yourself. And that's where Dylan definitely. comes in with his mighty pots of soup. I think uh, people were clamoring to ask him, you know, I need the recipe. Give me the recipe for what you were cooking this year. And uh, uh, he did good this year. And he did it with very little help. He's got the system down, you know. Him and y- he had one your bro- assistant. Y- your, brother, your brother is a damn good cook. I will say that. Yeah, I... I you know, smoking over the pot aside, but you know he's he's fantastic. <laughs> That's a funny photo. That's oh, I love it. Photo. Again, we need a, an audio visual for the podcast so people can see it. But indeed, so <laughs> promotional material. So I, I just wanted to ask, uh, how would you feel? Um, you know, would you say that the experience of Smolensk and Rajev? I mean, how do you think uh, experiences from those events have like factored into making this year better? And is there anything from this year that you want to you know use for the next year? I think it just told us that, you know what, we might have gone into it in, in 20, 2021 and 2022. We had um, grand ideas. You know, our eyes were bigger than our stomach, so to speak. Mm. And I think uh, the the missteps, the, the confusion, the problems with, with Smolensk and with Rajev, really, th- we've really taken them to heart, especially this year, because we knew that if we had, you know, the first Smolensk, well, it was well-received. It had a lot of detractors. Jev was better. But we knew that if we didn't have a smash success this third year, it was going to be harder to get people to come back for 44 and then, you know, 45. Um, sure, sure, so totally. I think just taking the feedback from what everybody says, even if it's feedback that is asinine or pedantic, there's always a grain of truth in whatever people say. And I think just being conscious of what people expect, what people want, we can try to meet them in the middle. Now, of course, you know, it's not perfect and we only have so much money to work with. Um, but for what we charge and what we delivered, I feel it's, 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 it's ample. I think it's, it's worthy of the cost. It's worthy of that. Um, and that's because we listen to what people say. I mean, we want to hear. People said last year that the combat was boring, that they sat around too long. Okay, so this year we made sure to put a little more pep in our step. And I think, again, to, to Mike Landry's credit, he was the combat commander. Um, he got these guys moving. We were under constant fire. Um, wow. So that was one wow. thing that's very easy to fix, more combat. Okay, we can do that. Good. One thing that people also said was that the rear line felt shallow. It was, you know, okay, you have a medical thing, but then you have, like, one guy cooking and he's smoking the whole time. Um, let's expand that. And I think growing the signal section, integrating telephones, radios into the scenario, not only makes us more efficient, you know, it's easier to call up the phone and ring up, hey, Platoon 1, are you dead? How are you guys doing? Um, Versus sending out a runner, you know, just makes the scenario more dynamic, more, uh, you don't have to stop. You don't have to say, oh, okay, go check on these guys with on foot. 
No, just call them up on the period phone that was provided by the signals group and say, you need food, you need water, and all this stuff can be handled that way. So I think just, you know, professionalizing everything has been a big boon, you know, hopefully getting That's people who are professional at signals, people who are professional and passionate about medical or cooking, and really attracting them to the hobby. We had a lot of new faces at Kursk about people who were maybe on the fence about the event or didn't know if they would fit in with their speciality. Um, and we're able to integrate a lot more people. And I, I, that's one thing I, I think is our great triumph of, of this year's event is that, you know, everybody was working well together, um, whether it be, you know, in logistics or in combat or in command, it, it went much better. Now, is it perfect? No, I'm sure uh, I'm being a little uh, rose tinted. Maybe I am, but Overall, I felt it was a very successful event because of what we learned from the first two years. That's great, man. So in our remaining uh, few minutes, do you want to just maybe give our listeners a, uh, a heads up as to what can maybe like w- what the top three scenarios oh, for next okay. year might be? All right, Hepcats, listen up. So this is the exclusive <laughs> um, uh, Reenactors Corner scoop. You know, you didn't have to read it in confidential. You had to you had to go to the source right here. So, <laughs> so on the feedback form that we posted, we asked, in addition to, you know, how'd you feel? What did you like? What didn't you like? We said, hey, what do you want for 44? Because we know it's going to be 44 for next year. Um, but 44 is a whole year. We could be, you could have anything from Leningrad. You could have anything down to Poland, into Romania, whatever. It's a big f- battlefield. So people posted. And, you know, there was probably as many scenarios as there were people. But a couple things came up common. So this isn't in stone. And this is the most obvious one. I think everybody expects this one. Is something during Operation Bagration in the summer of 44. So that'd be in Bielorussia. It could extend it into Poland. We like that scenario a lot because it allows us to integrate um, Polish, uh, Polish People's Army into the scenario. Yeah. So you could have a whole other group of people coming. Um, so that, that's the most obvious one. That one's going to be hard because that requires vehicles. And that requires us mm. to have vehicles. Um, mm. There is one T-34 in the country. or No, I'm sorry. There's more than one. But there is one in Indiana, I should say. Maybe we're talking to them. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I can't <laughs> say for sure. So that was the most obvious one. So the second scenario was in the Baltic. It was the Corlan Pocket. So it was something with ah, the Corlan okay. Pocket. Yep. I thought that's what it was. Maybe it was, but there's something, another famous event called that's not what we're doing. We're not yep. simulating the discrimination of the Polish General Plan Ost. We're uh-huh. not doing that. Um, <laughs> but it was in the Baltic, and it would be um, units that were trapped in Corlan, which was a huge mix of different groups. You had Navy personnel, yep. regular Army, hair. You had SS groups trapped there. So that was a really popular yep. one because it would allow people to do a little bit more of everything. We got to be careful with sure. that though because you don't want three guys who are doing navy when you know we could have really used three more hair fighters or whatever. Sure, sure. And the third snare, the one I'm really pushing for, I might be the only one pushing for it. Me and uh, one other guy, and it would be probably the one of the harder ones to do because we would need Hungarians, but we would do one of the battles that was on the way to Budapest. Um, in ah, fall of 44. So okay. problems with that okay. is that we need Hungarians. You know, you guys had Hunter yep. Lohmeyer on the podcast a couple years ago, or maybe a year ago. Yep. Um, yep. yep. He's jonesing. He's got a group of about eight to ten guys, and they're like, come on, Zach, we need an event. We need some Hungarians. Um, so I'd like to get him out. Um, 
but I know we have to look up some of the German units. That one we've done the least research into. We'd have to figure out what German okay. units were there so you could portray them efficiently. And if there was SS, we always try to have events where you have hair and SS cooperating. Sure. Because it's just the most common, the most common reenactment. Exactly. Units, right? <laughs> exactly. It gives us just more, a bigger net for the Germans because sure. every year we've had pretty good German attendance, but Soviet attendance has grown a lot over the three years. German was really good this year because we integrated a huge SS unit in the East Coast. I think it's um, first SS. Yeah, LH uh, National. Yes, them. So yep, they came yep. out. They did a great job. Um, cool. But, yeah, so those are the top three. We got Bagration. We have uh, Corlon Pocket. And then we have um, Hungary, which is the one I'm hoping for. I'm hoping for Hungary. So, essentially, my, um, my insight into smoking and reenacting is the fact that I'm probably the quintessential I took up smoking uh, because of reenacting. So the Hungarian helmet is a Stahlhelm. It's it basically the German M35, but it's painted green. It has a bracket on the back and the rivets are different. So they think, they look at us, they're like, you don't look like Germans, but you have German helmets. Like we can fake close combat and shooting at each other, but like the, the pure horror, of, it's never comprehensible unless you've lived it. The Reenactors Corner, bringing history to life. All right, we're just about out of time, but uh, thank you again to everybody who tuned in and to our marvelous Patreon community. And thank you very much again to Zach for your time today. I will see you in the field. We'll see you in the field. We love hearing what you think about the podcast. So why not reach out to us on Facebook or Discord? Just search for The Reenactors Corner and you'll find us there. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting us via Patreon. Your generous contributions, no matter how big or small, really do keep us on the air. And you'll also get regular additional exclusive episodes as a thank you. You can find details of where to find us on Patreon in the show notes. Thanks for listening. And we hope you'll join us again next time here on The Reenactors Corner. Corner.